We're in Revelation chapter 18. It's hard to believe we're already in chapter 18. And this is a chapter that describes the fall of Babylon, which we said last time Babylon is the way uh, the book of Revelation is referring to Rome. But of course, uh, there are many other cities of man that would, it would also apply to, but in the first century, Babylon is Rome. So let's, let's read the entire chapter together, and then we'll go back through it just so we get a sense of the whole context. Revelation chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of those wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her tor torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? 
And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. All right, let's pray and we'll jump right into this. Father in heaven, this is a a bone-chilling passage as we read about the fall of Babylon. Uh, We know that all uh, evil empires, evil cultures, societies, cities that stand against you uh, will ultimately crumble and fall. And uh, we know that happened to Rome as an empire, also as a city. And we know that will happen to any of the enemies of you and your church. And we pray that you would help us to see not only the, the tragedy of, a, of building a society uh, based on autonomy and, and the pleasures of man, but also help us to see how we're able to rejoice in the victory of, of Christ and of your people. And we pray that you would help us to see both the good news and the bad news as we look at this chapter together. May your Holy Spirit give us understanding, bless both the teaching time and our discussion time later. May we see how this applies uh, to our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Any more handouts? Okay, if you need a handout, raise your hand and Dr. Butler will give you one. So last time we were in Revelation, we said that Babylon uh, refers to the city of Rome, uh, although some commentators take it as Jerusalem. We've been proceeding on the assumption that it's Rome. Primary reason for that was, remember, there was this woman who was riding the beast, and on her head it said, Revelation 17, verse 5, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, And then in Revelation 17 and verse 18, it said, the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the great city that had dominion over the kings of the earth when Revelation was written was Rome. Uh, So we've been looking at how Rome uh, persecuted God's people in the first century, but also how Rome was an evil civilization uh, built upon uh, man's desires and man's pride and uh, man's uh, reputation. And so in Revelation 18 with the fall of Babylon, it's essentially announcing the, the, the crumbling of man's evil empire, especially Rome in the first century. In the Old Testament, there was a very similar passage uh, to this one in Jeremiah 50 and, ver- and also 51, where Jeremiah in the Old Testament prophesied about the Old Testament Babylon which was an evil empire, a Gentile world power, 
the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon, and Babylon was a place of idolatry and sensuality and sin. And Jeremiah prophesied the fall of that Babylon. And so most likely that Old Testament language is being used now in this situation in Revelation to speak of the fall of Rome. Uh, as we start to look at this, it's important to realize not only are we in Revelation, a highly symbolic book of the Bible, but in this highly symbolic book of the Bible, where it's poetry. And you can even tell the way it's written here, a lot of this is not just normal prose, as the rest of the book is, but it almost looks like a psalm. You know, in the Old Testament, when you read the book of Psalms, you see all that white space because it's written in verse, it's written like a poem, and here's a poem, so it's highly poetical, and as such, it should not be interpreted in a highly literalistic manner. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the language of the heart, it's the language, uh, it's supposed to move us with how impressive this city was, and yet how devastating was its fall. And essentially what we're reading is a funeral dirge um, for the city of Rome, that this city has come to, to be destroyed, and, and, and it is dead. And there is a sense in which there is a lament happening. You saw the kings of the earth who enjoyed the power they had uh, in alliance with the city of Rome. You also see the merchants who did commerce there. Uh, they're lamenting the destruction of their culture, their civilization. Uh, but also you saw, as hopefully as we read through that whole chapter, that this is an occasion for God's people to rejoice. Because it said in verse 20 of chapter 18, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then eventually we'll get to chapter 19, when after Babylon falls, they sing hallelujah. Uh, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So God's people rejoice when God's enemies are judged. And we saw, we've talked about that theme multiple times. God saved the, the Hebrews out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea. He drowned the armies of Egypt. And what did God's people do? They rejoiced uh, because God defeated the enemies, the armies of Egypt, when God saved his people. So that theme of salvation coming to God's people by means of judgment has been repeated again and again. Well, this, this uh, chapter tells us about the fall of Rome, but it also will have applications for any society, any city, any civilization, any culture that is built on similar principles. And so the, in that sense... We'll see how the application even can apply to our culture today. So let's start in this, looking at those first three verses. And just notice how in those first three verses, as this angel is announcing the fall of Babylon, how it really stresses the evil of this city, this culture. Uh, did you notice there in verse 2, it said, this is a place, uh, the city of Babylon, Rome, is a dwelling place for demons. <laughs> It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So this city was so evil that it was, it was filled with demons. 
And we don't want to demythologize that or take away the supernatural element. Uh, cultures, societies, cities can invite demonic activity in by sin and by evil. Uh, wicked cultures can be demonized as they come under the Lord's judgment for approving sin. We saw Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said? that when you cast out a, a demon uh, or an unclean spirit, it, uh, if the house remains empty, then other unclean spirits come back and inhabit it. And Jesus said, so it will be with this evil generation. So Jerusalem itself was filled with demons, not only when Jesus was there exercising them, but also when after he left, sadly many of the people didn't convert, and all those demons came back with a vengeance. We saw that in Revelation chapter 9. And so Jerusalem was certainly filled with demons. And also the city of Rome was filled with demons. It was an evil, evil place to be. Uh, it's also a place of death and uncleanness. So you see there in verse 2, the unclean birds and detestable beasts. So most likely that's referring to animals that fed on carrion. They were unclean for that reason. And so you have this picture of ceremonial uncleanness a place of evil. Uh, verse 3 says it's a place of sexual immorality. Uh, they, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So that's not only sexual immorality in the sense of physical sexual immorality, but it's also in the sense of idolatry. We've seen that the worship of idols in the Roman Empire involved cult prostitution. Uh, it's also a place that attracts those who worship power, represented there by the kings of the earth, and those who worship money, the merchants of the earth. So we said that within the Roman Empire, and especially the city of Rome, there was the worship of what? Money, of sex, and of power. Money, sex, and power. And we said, really, any culture that is built on money, sex, and power uh, as idols will be destroyed. Uh, it also will persecute Christians. And so you can see here that it's a place of power, influence, luxury. Uh, like I have here in your notes to borrow from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, this is Vanity Fair. This is the world. Um, and so this is what can happen to a city that lives for self, that lives for the pleasures of self, that lives for the pride of self, that lives for power, that lives for pleasure, all of that, this is what can happen. It becomes a demonized culture. It becomes a place of death and uncleanness, of great sexual morality, of great idolatry. And uh, this, is, this was true of Rome, but this is also true of many cultures today. Uh, I think in, in many ways you can even see in our American culture that we see some of these things happening. Uh, we see increased demonic activity. We see increased... Uh, death. We see sexual immorality. We see those who are attracted to power and what, how they can manipulate power to influence other people and to uh, exploit other people. The love of money, the love of, of wealth. And so right at the, at the outset here, God announces the fall of the city of Rome uh, and gives this very unflattering description, which shows us why this culture deserved God's judgment. Uh, as any culture that would be built on the same principles would. But after giving that initial description of the, the wicked culture, look what God says to his people. So he announces the fall of Babylon, 
the, the, the evil city of man or, the, or Rome, right? He announces the fall of Babylon. But in verse 4, then the voice calls out to God's people and summons them. And what does it say? Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So God addresses his people who are living where? In Babylon. <laughs> in, in Rome. They're living in, they're living in the empire. They're living in the midst of this evil culture where there are, there's a dwelling place for demons and uh, there's death and uncleanness and sexual morality and idolatry. They're living right there. And God says, come out. Don't stay there. Come out of her. So, uh, in the Old Testament, we won't look up all of them. You can see similar commands in Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're there in your notes uh, where God tells his people, come out of Babylon. Come out and be different. Be set apart. And that, that exhortation for God's people to come out of Babylon does not mean a complete physical departure from Babylon. So you think about like Anabaptist, like the Amish, and they have this kind of idea that, that to be holy, you need to kind of physically remove yourself from the unbelieving world. You need to have your own holy huddle and just totally, totally retreat and get into your own believing world and, and just try to build a utopia right there so you're not contaminated by the outside world. And so you could see how someone who had that kind of worldview might say, well, come out of here. That's what we need to do. We just need to leave Babylon. We need to leave the city, or we need to leave uh, these urban areas that are dominated by evil, or we need to retreat. You could make it more figurative. We need to retreat from politics. We need to retreat from education. We need to retreat from the arts and just form our own little, you know, holy huddle. But we know that God has called us to be salt and light. Uh, we're supposed to be visible in the world and also beneficial in the world. Salt, uh, salt is only beneficial to the meat as a preservative if it's rubbed into the meat, right? It's got to interact with the meat to retard the corruption of the meat. Also, light has to be diffused through the darkness to cause the darkness to be dispelled. So, you know, Jesus described the church or his disciples as a city set on a hill. Um, that's not a reference to America, contra John Winthrop, by the way. It's a reference to the church. The church is a city on a hill. It's supposed to be an alternative community. It's supposed to, to be separate, and, but also to be involved in the world. So in the Old Testament, when God told his people to come out, it didn't mean retreat from the, the society. Uh, you, you can see like in Jeremiah 29, when Jeremiah gets his letter, uh, gives his letter to the exiles, the Jewish exiles who were living in Babylon, in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. In Babylon, build houses, live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Have babies, multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So, so the idea of coming out of the city was not an idea of retreat and say, well, it's all going to burn. 
It's, it's burning. You know, there's nothing we can do about it, and it's all going to burn. But rather, uh, it means that God is calling his people to moral and spiritual separation from the evils of Babylon. Salt and light are beneficial because of their distinctiveness. Salt has that distinctive taste, right? It's saltiness, Jesus says. And light has that distinctiveness, right? It's, it's heat and it's illumination. And, and it's in our distinctiveness from the world, separate from the world, but it's also for the world. Just like when God called Abraham, he called him out of the world, but for the world. He called him out of the, the uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, but he said that through him, he was going to make him a blessing to the nations, to all the nations. And so it is in, in our separation, uh, in a moral and spiritual sense, that uh, we're supposed to uh, live in the evil culture. So other places where this is taught in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, uh, we see it there in chapter 6, which is a good one to read because it kind of quotes all those Old Testament verses I didn't read. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 kind of conveys this idea of separation. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So you see that, go out and be separate. Obviously doesn't mean don't have any relationships with unbelievers. How can you influence unbelievers? Don't have any relationship with the culture. Well, then you wouldn't have a positive influence on it. But rather, it's a spiritual separation. Uh, and, it, and it gives us the reason why, going back to Revelation 18 now, come out, go back to verse 4, come out of her, my people, why? Lest you take part in her sins and lest you share in her plagues. You don't want to be corrupted by that sinful city. Uh, you don't want to share, therefore, in the judgments. So God's people must be careful not to assimilate into pagan culture, lest we incur God's judgment. We must avoid unbiblical syncretism, which means syncretism is a blend of, in this case, Christianity and paganism, or the values of the city of God with the city of man. We don't want to combine the values of the city of man with the city of God. City of man lives for love of self. City of God lives for love of God, right? City of man lives for the pleasures that can satisfy me. City of God lives for the glory of God. And so there is a, there is a different, there's, a, there's an antithesis and there's a distinction so, you think about this exhortation, you know, you can think about what it meant for Christians who were living in the city of Rome or who were living in that culture of Rome, more broadly considered. It was a call for them, you know, not to 
worship Caesar, not to say Caesar is Lord. It was a call for them not to participate in the sexual immorality of the culture that was normalized. It was a call for them to uh, sometimes suffer social ostracism because they didn't worship the state. They didn't, they didn't put their trust in princes, right? They didn't, they didn't look like Romans in that sense. They, they dressed similar. They, they, they lived among the Romans, uh, but they were Christians. They were different. They were called to a heavenly city. They were called to live according to the kingdom of God and his, the advance of his kingdom. So you think about examples of syncretism today, you know, what are the, what are the kinds of contemporary examples where we can see possible syncretism? Uh, so one of the things that I thought of, and it's always dangerous when you start to give examples, but it's not worthwhile. I can't apply the Bible to you without giving some examples, so you may disagree, but here's some that come up. Uh, there was a campaign that went on the TV called He Gets Us. And I think that was well-intended. Uh, it is well-intended. It's trying to get, get people to start talking about Jesus. You've seen some of these commercials. He gets us. It talks about Jesus. talks about how Jesus gets us. He understands what it's like to be human and that sort of thing. But some of the, the messages that is implied there is almost like Jesus is tolerant of sinful lifestyles. The, the feel you get from some of those ads may be that. And if that is the case, you see what? An unbiblical syncretism between Jesus, who is love, who is truth and grace, who calls us to righteousness, who calls us to repentance, and this kind of cultural idea of love as tolerance or acceptance or approval of whatever lifestyle you might have. That could be an effect of something like that. I saw another example uh, recently, uh, I guess say recently, it's been the past few months, this is a very risky one to use, uh, and this is not a political comment, but it, but it is one that I think is a perfect example of syncretism to which Christians could fall prey. This was a political campaign ad for Donald Trump. And in this campaign ad for Donald Trump, the, the title of the ad was God Made Trump, which of course he did create Trump, right? He also created Biden, he created, created us all. But in the ad, it said the following. It said, he is our good shepherd. It said, he has come who will never leave us nor forsake us. And it went on to use messianic titles of Trump. Now, that is demonic and blasphemous and evil. And that's not a political comment about who you vote for. But that kind of understanding or speaking of political candidates who are sinful men is wicked and evil and it's kind of syncretism. But there is that kind of God and country that can come into our understanding of politics and culture that we have to be careful for. Regardless of how we end up voting or those kinds of decisions, that is not something that is good. And I can show you the ad if you want to see it later. It gives me chills to watch it, honestly, because I think it's satanic. I think it's downright satanic uh, that someone would even make that, that ad. Uh, but that would be another example of that kind of syncretism. Obviously, there are obvious examples like health and wealth prosperity teaching. What is more of an Americanized gospel than that? That Jesus wants to make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous and just kind of suit all of your desires and your selfish whims and things like that. And all of those things the Lord would be saying to us, come out of her, my people. 
Don't be like her, my people. Don't be like Babylon the harlot. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, if you're in the new covenant, if you're a Christian, God remembers your iniquities no more. Praise God. But for this evil empire, for this city, for man's city, God remembers her iniquity. That is bad news. And God is bringing judgment on this uh, evil Babylon. Look at her pride in verses 6 through 8. Notice how it says there uh, in verse 7 that she glorified herself. Doesn't that stand out to you? She glorified herself. She is Babylon's, the city. You know, city, cities in the Bible are often, you know, they're presented as women. And, and this woman is the prostitute. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. See that? I'm something. I'm the queen. I'm never going to mourn. I'm, I'm never going to be destroyed. I'm going to have earthly immortality. And what does it say? God says, for this reason. What reason? Pride. Boasting. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. So, day, as we've seen, poetical language here, doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour period, but it's, the, it's, trying to, it's capturing here the, the suddenness with which God's judgment Came. You think about the Old Testament when God says, the, the feet of the wicked are set in slippery places, and they shall slip in due time. It's just going to come suddenly. They're going to slip and come into judgment. Well, that's true of individuals. It is also true of cities and cultures and nations. David Clark says, Some, Someone may say, Rome did not fall so suddenly nor so utterly, and therefore this hardly fits her case. Rome still exists as a city to the present day. But that objection has little force. Rome did fall, but it was not sudden, you say. Let me refer to you to the old Babylon, Old Testament Babylon. When the armies of Cyrus captured her on the, right, on the night of Belshazzar's feast, the first blow was sudden, but centuries dragged away before her ruin was total. Now Rome was frequently sacked and burned and captured again and again, and in her fall there was a suddenness of calamity and the gradualness of decline. That a city called Rome still exists in the present day does not nullify this interpretation. The old persecuting Rome, Rome as a persecutor of the church, Rome is the beast, Rome is Babylon, or the prostitute. The enemy of God and the church received her punishment. God providentially destroyed her as an enemy of the church. So, uh, very strong words here about um, the responsibility of God's people. God's people is to be set apart, not to assimilate into wicked culture, but to be set apart from it, to be in it, no doubt to pray for the culture, to proclaim the gospel, all that, but also to be different, to be distinct, not to, uh, not to have the virtues of Rome, but have the virtues of God's word. So, kings and merchants uh, are kind of come on the scene here poetically, and they lament 
they lament the fall of Rome or the fall of Babylon. And the reason why they're lamenting it is they've taken advantage of this sinful culture. They've profited from it. So in verses 9 and 10, you see the kings of the earth. And, and, and the picture there is they're watching the downfall of this evil city. It's, you almost get this idea that they're sitting off, looking at the hill, almost like Jonah at the end of Nineveh, you know, waiting for it to be destroyed. And they see it destroyed. And um, the smoke is going up. And, and they're, they're weeping and wailing. They are, they are in mourning. It's like they're at a funeral. And the reason why is all of their hopes for their power and manipulating people and being the best are bound up in Babylon. And so when Babylon falls, they're watching their idol crumble. That's how they have maintained power. It was kind of like the citadel uh, of their power. And they see it, see it go down and they're, you know, you see they're, they're, they're sad that their day of, of power has come to an end. And then the merchants uh, start to, to mourn. And in verses 11 through 13, their focus is primarily on their earthly treasures, right? Because they, these are those who have really exploited the economy. And they've made a lot of money uh, in, in Rome. And you just notice how, uh, <clears throat> how sensual or, or just, just physical the description is. We've got that list of cargo, gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen. It goes through and just, you can almost visualize all the stuff, all the things that the eyes can see and, and hands can feel and the things that, that mammon, it gives you a list of mammon, material possessions. And it's very similar to God's judgment on Tyre, which was a pagan city uh, that came under judgment in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 27. And it's so the, so the same language that was used of a previous city that was destroyed by God in history is now being used of Rome. So again, this is how God works in history. It's not just Babylon, not just Rome. This is how God treats cities, cultures, civilizations, societies that are all about mammon, all about earthly treasures. Um, I, I thought of this verse in Psalm 17 and verse 14. These merchants are the men of the world whose portion is in this life. Isn't that a great phrase to describe it? The men of this world whose portion is in this life. What they can get in this life. Um, notice also that because of this love of money, they exploit people who are made in the image of God. Uh, among all their wares, all the things that they sold, did you notice at the end of verse 13, there's people. They're, they're, ma they're, they're making slaves of people. And they're treating human beings who are made in the image of God like property. Because what? This is a city that worships money. It worships sex. And it worships power. If, if you think that a culture like ours today that worships money, sex, and power isn't going to have something like human trafficking, you know, it's going to have that, right? Because that, that's, that's just another symptom of a culture that worships money, that worships sex, and that worships power. Human trafficking does all three. All three of those things are done. What a wicked thing. What a defacing of the image of God in man. 
And it's just, it, it almost hits you as you're reading, when you're reading through that in verses 11 through 13, and you're just thinking about all these physical things, and it's like, oh, and people, human souls. It just throws it out there, just like property, as if it's nothing. And it's, I think it's, a, it's meant to be jarring, that, that this is a city uh, that's built on those things. And the shipmasters and the sailors join in, and notice there in verse uh, 18, they say something ominous and something that was reminiscent of something that was said earlier. They say, what city was like the great city? Well, when they say that, it's on fire. It's incurred God's judgment. But remember back in chapter 13 when it described the beast, what did they say? Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? They are in pride, you know, almost puffing up their chest and look at, look at this empire we have. Look at its power. And then in almost like, in almost uh, irony, this reversal of, of, of the state of affairs, the pride of Revelation 13, 4 is now the tragedy of Revelation 18, verse 18. And so the people who were the, the haves, you know, as opposed to the have-nots, the people who were the haves, those who were thriving on the sinful society of Rome, they're all now lamenting. You know, it reminds us kind of of Jesus when he says, right, woe to you who are rich, for you will mourn. Woe to you who have nothing, for you will be comforted. You know, those kinds of reversals that essentially you see the reversal of God's judgment. Those who were enjoying earthly treasures now uh, have come under God's uh, punishment. And in verse 20, God's people are rejoicing. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Just another aside here, kind of in defense of saying that Babylon refers to Rome as opposed to Jerusalem. You know, I said some people argue for Jerusalem, uh, it mentions here the uh, rejoice, you apostles. The apostles were pretty much all killed by Rome, you know. And so that more leans towards taking this as Rome as, a part, part of, as opposed to Jerusalem. Prophets, that would kind of more fit with Jerusalem. But apostles definitely uh, makes you think more of Rome. But be that as it may, uh, God's people are happy because what? Vindication. Remember back in chapter 6 that you had the souls of those who had been martyred for the word of God? And what were they saying? That they were in heaven and they were saying, how long, O Lord? When are you going to vindicate us? When are you going to avenge the blood of, the, of your people? And God told them to wait. Well, the time of waiting's over and um, the judgment comes. And so that, that's something that, that uh, we need to understand that there is, uh, God doesn't desire the death of the wicked. Obviously, he would rather the wicked turn and repent. But there is a sense God's, God is rejoicing in the glory of his justice and the protection of his people when the wicked are destroyed. So he's not a sadist. He doesn't delight in inflicting pain. He loves it when people repent. He loves it when people uh, escape the judgment. But there is joy in that for those who are unrepentant when they're removed. That can be rejoiced in. 
And, uh, and that's what God's people are rejoicing in. Not, not that people are not repentant. You would want them to be repentant. Heaven rejoices when people are repentant. But that for those who are not repentant and who are obstinate in that impenitence, that they finally get their judgment day, heaven rejoices in that as well. And so at the end of this uh, section, it kind of culminates with how God just utterly destroys Babylon. Uh, and he uses an image here that uh, goes back to the book of Jeremiah of uh, a millstone, a great big millstone that is thrown into the sea. Uh, if you recall, earlier on in the book of Revelation, it, it spoke about this large burning mountain that was thrown into the sea. And we talked about how that was an image of the, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Well, now we have the second enemy of the church, city of Rome. That's also pictured here, not as a mountain burning, but as a millstone that is thrown into the sea. Uh, just so you see that, it's kind of helpful to see that. Jeremiah chapter 51 talks about that. Jeremiah 51, verse 69. It doesn't make any sense. What Bible was I looking at when I looked that up? It must be 59. I have to fire my typist. The only problem with that is I'm my typist. Yeah, 59. The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, son of Mesheah, <laughs> when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, Sariah was the quartermaster. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the, the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said... Uh, concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it in the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. So you see a similar image, not an identical image, but this idea of a stone sinking down uh, judgment on Babylon, judgment on Babylon, Rome. Uh, that's the picture. And look at the, the haunting words that describe how the city of Babylon come to a violent end. Notice the word violence in verse 21, a violent end. Although there once was music, there's not going to be any more music. So they used to make this great music. Culture was abounding. Even God's gifts of what we call common grace were, were celebrated. There was a real culture there. No more music. Once there was craftsmanship, you know, man's made in the image of God, whether he's a believer or an unbeliever, creating crafts, contributing to culture and uh, even the legitimacy of trade and hard work. There's no more craftsmanship. There was once meaningful work. Work is a gift that God gave to man. Remember, God created Adam. He put him in the garden to work and keep it even before the fall. Uh, work was a good gift from God, but there's not any more meaningful work here. There was light, symbolic of the presence of God, symbolic of truth, whatever you may, however you may apply that, but there will be darkness. 
There was the joy of marriage, a great creation institution of a man and a woman entering into a covenant, forming a family, having children. No more marriage. Marriage is no longer taking place. There was once commerce, the giving and exchanging of goods. No more commerce. And the ESV, ESV Study Bible says this, and I thought it was so good. Ordinary cultural activities and artifacts, though proper in themselves, become unsustainable when human civilization, having defied the Creator, receives His judgment. Make sense? See the relevance? Our culture, our music, our entertainment, our law, our uh, education, our politics, our marriages, our families, if they are, if they are built on defiance of God and his word, they will fall. They will be destroyed. Not just at the end of time, but God providentially brings judgments in history. He providentially brings judgments in history. He did that with Jerusalem. He does it with Rome. And throughout history, the Bible tells us Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. He's, his enemies are being brought in subjection beneath his feet. He has a rod of iron. What does he do with a rod of iron? He smashes the earthenware vessels with the rod of iron. Uh, and so there are these judgments that can come. And so what's the response? What is the, what is the response for the church? Well, for the church we saw, come out from her, lest you be defiled by our plagues. Don't, don't be assimilated into that wickedness. Be different. Do these things differently, whether it's music or craftsmanship or work or marriage or commerce. Do it as a Christian. Do it as in light of the Lordship of Christ. Do it in light of the teaching of God's Word. Do it for the glory of God, not for man's city, not for self, but for God, for His glory, not for the love of self. Uh, we are supposed to be set apart, different. What's the call to outside the church? What's the call to the culture? What's the call to the people? It doesn't have to be destroyed, actually. I think sometimes we, we have this idea that every culture is destined to be a Babylon, right? But look at Nineveh. They repented under Jonah's preaching, and they were delivered of the judgment that God said would come. There can be repentance, and, and people can be delivered. Uh, families can be delivered. Uh, cities can be delivered. Societies can be delivered with repentance. So we start thinking about, you know, what is our prayer for the people in this country? Is it, is it to try to, to manipulate them with the political process? Is it, try, is it try to enforce things just from without? You know, yes, there's a place for law, but where does it ultimately start? With the heart, with calling the people to repentance, calling them to Christ, calling them to bow the knee to Jesus, who is the king, right? Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. And so there is a call that is to go out uh, to the world uh, to repent and believe the good news and uh, find everlasting life in Christ. Um, any questions before we, we have a few minutes before we break for our discussion. Uh, we are going to do discussion groups tonight, but if y'all have any questions before we break, speak now or forever hold your peace. Till next week. <laughs>
It was so sufficiently clear that you don't have any questions, right? All right, let's pray, and we'll go to our discussion groups. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that your truth uh, is both convicting and comforting. It is convicting when we realize that in so many ways we have in our hearts uh, the, the idols of, of Babylon. Uh, we, we, have, uh, the, we know the temptation to, the, to cherish the things that Babylon cherishes, and we pray that you would help us to repent of those things and to come out and be separate. Uh, we also find it encouraging that, uh, that through Christ we have victory, uh, we have triumph uh, over the evil forces in this world, and we know that, that anything that stands against you and your church, you will deal with it in your own appointed time. And we pray that you would help us to, to realize the moment of time that uh, we live in, that our day, and what our responsibility is to live under the Lordship of Christ, and help us to to start with our own hearts and our own homes and our own lives uh, and to examine them in light of your word so that we can be faithful to you. We thank you that through Jesus uh, we are overcomers and we pray that we would be mindful of that. We ask that you would bless our discussion groups. May we sharpen one another and be encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.